Steve, and you know, normally I would say welcome back to another episode of Wrestlers the Podcast, but we were just sitting here chatting about hope and where does hope come from? And over the course of the last few months, we've heard a lot of stories from folks who it would appear at some point in time things were hopeless, but by the end of that evening, we really saw how their lives turned around because of this thing called hope. And everybody's story is different and unique, such as fingerprints are. And as C.S. Lewis said, that in every story, somewhere we find our place. And I think tonight, Luke, that's going to be the same thing as we hear from John. So, by the way, welcome back to Restless the Podcast. And if you would like to get in touch with us, you can do so by going to our website location, restlessofthepodcast.com. And there's a section where you can go to a drop-down box, and it says, Tell Your Story. Leave something about yourself, and we would love to get back with you and chat. And it's not a commitment to uh, you being on the show, but maybe there's just something you want to talk about. So we would love to hear from you. So, But tonight, Luke, I think we, again, have a, a, a blessing in the form of a story that we'll hear from John Tell us a little bit about John. Welcome back, everyone, and thank you, Steve. Tonight, today's guest is John, and John has quite the story of, while despite coming from a God-fearing home, after going off to college and being separated from family, going down a road of drugs and addiction and many other personal challenges and struggle. But thankfully, that story does end in recovery, and John expressed to me earlier before we started recording that he hopes his story will be a guidepost to others who either have dealt with or are currently dealing with a similar situation. So today we welcome John. John, thank you for being here. We're really excited to hear your story and see how it might influence others for good. Well, thank you, guys. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with uh, Restless, the podcast, and uh, I look forward to um, sharing my story. How are you feeling today, John? Um little nervous. I've uh, never sat in front of a microphone before, so it, it'll have its challenges, but I look forward to um, see what we can do. Don't worry. Microphones are very friendly creatures. <laughs> they are. <laughs> Thank you, Luke. <laughs> All right. Well, here we go. My name's John, and I'm an alcoholic. Um, I would like to take uh, start off by saying... What my, what, what my life was like, what happened, and what it's like now. Um, I was born and raised in a Christian family, one of four. I have a twin sister, an older brother, an older sister. A loving mother and father. My father um, was raised on a four-generation poor farm, which is a story all by itself, and it's a really neat story. It's a, they were county farms um, developed by the state of Pennsylvania. I assume all states did it. And it was a place for a family to raise their children for free. And in return, they had the responsibility of caring for anywhere from 10 to 15 handicapped people, either physically, mentally, or both. Um, the mother was responsible for uh, all the cooking, cleaning, 
dining. Uh, the father was responsible for having them go out and work in the fields every day. Um, they were usually pretty far, uh, large farms, and uh, they even were known to have their own cemeteries. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty kind of pretty neat. So at a young age, um, you know, my father went to work. I think he married my mother when he was uh, 18 or 19, and the rest is history. He worked, and my mother raised us four children. Uh, my sister was six or seven years older. I really never knew her. She went to uh, college when I was in fifth or sixth grade, so I really didn't have much of a relationship with her. Uh, my brother was three years older, and uh, I was just about obnoxious enough that he didn't want anything to do with me. Um, and I think that's pretty normal. Uh, I love my brother, but, um, you know, like, I remember when uh, he loved to race HO cars, little slot cars, and he'd go over to his friend's house and they'd race these slot cars and man, I really wanted to go. I had my own slot car and I was ready to go. But, you know, just that age, almost three years younger, I just didn't fit in. Um, but I never stopped trying that. And uh, as, we get, as we got older and now at these days uh, with my brother, I have a very good relationship. But at, at the time, I was always uh, trying to have a relationship, never really did. Um, my twin sister and I were definitely the closest. Um, went through all of uh, school together, and, and I, I love her dearly. Um, looking back on my life, having three daughters, I almost wonder whether that was God's way of giving me the children that I've, I could love the most because the only thing I really knew about uh, my, my sister and two brothers, my older brother and sister, was my twin sister. So uh, we had a very good bond together. So um, I lived a pretty normal high school life. My dad worked all, all the time. He had his um, school board Monday, his hospital board Tuesday, and whatnot, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So I never really saw him too much. Um, I usually helped him out on the, uh, the, uh, show, I called it the shop where he had his business on Saturday and on Sunday we'd go to church Sunday morning and have the day to do activities, either go for a ride or work around the house or whatever. It, it was, it was okay. But I never got along with, uh, well with my father. I was always, was always trying, but I always tried in the wrong direction. Hmm. Um, remember when I was 15 years old, I, we went to look for snowmobiles. And my dad was very good at his job, and um, pretty much everything he touched, he was successful with it from a monetary standpoint. Um, but I remember going, we were looking for snowmobiles, uh, going to go look for snowmobiles, and I was 15 and maybe three or four months. And I walked out of that snowmobile shop store and I, I put a snow hat, a, a knit hat in my pocket. 
without paying for it. And I don't know how later that night, uh, the cap came out of my pocket and my dad saw it. And, you know, I look back over why I, I look back over that day. It took me 30 years to look back over that day and realize why I did it. I mean, first of all, why would I steal the hat when I, when I don't need, when I have a hundred hats at home? And second of all, why would I make sure I pulled it out at the end of the day that he would see it? I mean, about the two stupidest things I could do at age 15, but mm -hmm. I, did, I did both of them. And it wasn't until I got into my recovery, uh, let's see, I was 15, I got in my recovery in my uh, late 20s that I realized I was just starving for his attention. And um, I find that I did that a lot, and it was extremely uh, counterproductive and just not not the way to do it. But I, I didn't I didn't know any other way. So consequently, when I went away to uh, college, I had a great relationship with my mother, uh, my twin sister, and uh, my dad, and I just kind of went our own ways. Um, so then comes my college years, and uh, I, my college my college years was such a disappointment because the, the good Lord gave us all a, a, a good mind, and maybe for all of us it's not getting a four zero in college, but He gives us the ability to utilize the skills that he's given each one of us, they're all different. But for, uh, for me, I had a good mind and I totally wasted it. Um, I'd never, I didn't know what any form of drugs were in high school. And when I went away to college, you know, the first week I, I learned what marijuana was and, you know, I was off to the races for four years. And, um, that's all I can say about my college years. It was just a, a I'd look back on it. Um, I graduated okay. Um, didn't have no worries with that, but I, I didn't get anything out of it except how to party. And uh, consequently, sometimes I, I hold, uh, you know, every year the university will send me out, um, for, you know, a donation form. And I really got this chip on my shoulder, and I won't even open it. I just send it back where I put it in the trash can. I really got this resentment for my university that the first thing that they didn't teach us was how to grow up or how to handle society when you're not in, in, in your home environment. And then I look on the other side, most of the people that went to college were just fine. They didn't go through what I went through. So I guess what I'm, when I'm thinking about it as the moment goes by, I guess I'm just trying to blame a situation or blame an institution for um, something I should have recognized with myself. Um, so maybe after this, uh, podcast i'll go back and when i get my contribution form next year i'll feel different about it mm. but okay so that was my uh, high school years that was my college years and um now we're going to get into uh 
I got out of college. Um, I was the first uh, person to have in my class at college when I was a senior. I was the first senior to have a job when I graduated. And the job was working for General Motors in Baltimore. Um, I'm going to get online as an online supervisor and uh, work on uh, supervising. I think they were producing uh, El Caminos or Malibus at the time. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, about the 1st of May, there was a, I got a notice in the mail saying that General Motors was having a major uh, cutback or layoff. And I went from having a job to not having a job, uh, you know, May of 1980. So um, I didn't really want to go back to work for my father, who had a construction company. So um, I went to work for a restaurant chain in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Um, And I spent uh, about two and a half years there. I started as a uh, 11 to 7 manager. Um, I worked for a company called Davenport's. They had uh, about 26 24-hour restaurants, and um, they had a group of managers of, I don't know, maybe say 200, four managers at each store, and they would rotate shifts, and you would start out working for the company on 11 to 7, graduate to a 3 to 11, and then a 7 to 11, and eventually have your own store. And by the time that I had left that place uh, two and a half years later, I had uh, become a general manager, had my own store, and the responsibility of everybody under me. So it was pretty good. Um, yeah, uh, when, what really happened to me in Harrisburg other than um, had my first job, I was good at it, had a lot of girlfriends, and um, that's about what I remember from those uh, years. Um, yeah, well, a random day, maybe it'd build up for a while, but my dad came down to see me and said, hey, John, at some point I'd like to get out of my business if you want to come back and work for me. You know, I, now is the time. So um, I picked up, I sold my house, picked up my roots, and went back to work for my father. Um... And that meant going back to my hometown. Uh, let's see, that was 1983. So I was 20, what, 25? Something like that, 25 years old. And, you know, I, I really never thought that I couldn't work for him, even though I never got along with him. Um, it's, a, it's a strange thing to try to explain to somebody that for somebody you didn't get along with your whole life, the only thing you want to do is make them happy and have them uh, respect who you are. Or I don't know whether I wanted to be just like him or I wanted to carry on the, the family business. I don't know why I wanted to come back. I just, I guess, uh, out of sheer respect for my father. So when I came back to work for him, and, and there was a lot of interesting things that happened that first year. Um, I'd still, 
managed to party a lot, drink, a, uh, smoke a lot of marijuana. Um, I would drink, you know, I'd go to a bar and play pool all night and drink beer. Mm, good gracious. I used to go to this bar it's called Mom Newfer. I'll never forget that. What'd you call that, John? What was it called? It was it was it's called Newfer's ta- Newfer's Tavern. Wow. <laughs> but we'd go, you know I'd go there at like five o'clock and just play pool, you know, drink beer until like midnight. Get up, go home, and you know get up at five o'clock and do the same thing the next day. It was just you know when you're 25, your body is so resilient, resilient, and um, you know when when you think of that resilient body, it's uh, it's like our youngest uh, daughter went to Gettysburg, and I went through one of the reenactments up at Gettysburg one time, and I was amazed at uh, Stonewall Jackson mm. when uh, he tells these uh, boys, they were boys, 15 to 18 years old, that they're going to run down over this hill, cross this picket fence, and attack the guys on the other side. And I, I think that when any boys at that age, they have they have no concept to the value of life. Mm. They just we, we didn't have a clue. You just did what you did. You woke up the next day and you did it. You, there were so many uh, parts of my life that I never really. I just assumed I was invincible and would live forever. I guess. And um, but consequently, I think we could. Uh, I. My biggest problem with doing this podcast is you'll. You'll notice that I always go back to we, and I shouldn't. It's a, it's a constant lesson to my humility because it should be I. I should. I find that if I focus on me instead of saying we, I immediately um, am putting the burden back on me, and versus pushing it off to. Um, everybody else in this room or whatever the situation that I have in life, I have to stick with I. I can't hmm. say we. That's, that's interesting. And so the we is whoever was with you at the time, a certain event called, you were involved with it. And so that kind of makes it more palatable to say that? I, it doesn't have to necessarily be um, at, at that moment with who I'm with. Mm-hmm. It... Um, I find a lot with my addiction, I would just use the word we because with any de- with any decision I was making, whether it was at the moment, like what you're talking about, Steve, or something that might have happened yesterday, I just, by using the word we instead of I, is just always a scapegoat. Yeah. So, so we is something that you've kind of habitually used in conversations as a means to May perhaps even comfort the fact of what you were involved with, or but you don't like talking about yourself. I take it. Well, when you say find comfort, but um, I I I don't know what you're like, but you know, at the end of the day, when I lay my head down on that pillow, I really don't want to be worrying about anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and um, I always get wonder. I always wonder how how can somebody murder somebody. And mm-hmm. lay down their head on the pillow and and attempt to go to sleep. So when I say I instead of we, if I use we, you know, I can oh, you know that's how we, the people do it, or that's how we do it, and you know, way I go and go to sleep, and you know, 
Tomorrow's another day. Suggestion is a powerful thing, including self-suggestion. Yeah, it cer- yeah. certainly is. Um, oh, a couple, um, I don't usually have the luxury when I tell my story, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. Um, to have a piece of paper in front of me and, and reflect on a couple of uh, parts of my life that happened. But my, um, but one I want to talk about before I, I went downhill was uh, my mother. I mean, I, it's, uh, for me, it's, it's almost hard to say her name without uh, having a tear in my eye because uh, you know, mom's, my mom's always been the one that, uh, no matter what I did wrong, you know, mom was always there. Mm-hmm. Uh, even at the young age when I would do something wrong and, you know, you come home from school and the first thing out of your mother's mouth was just wait till your father comes home. You know, you would, you would dread that. But, uh, it started at a young age with that. And she said, my mom, my mom's great. She's, uh, she's, why I am where I am today, where I am. Um, and then naturally as I married my wife and had my children, they kind of took over for my mother because my mother's three hours away and it's, you know, it's just different having a relationship when you're over the phone and you can't physically see him every day. Mm-hmm. And your mom's still alive. My mother still is alive. Yeah, both my parents are alive, great. both okay. born in 30. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But my mom had one goal in life. Um, and I'll get into that in a second, but my mom had one goal in life and I had one goal for my children in life. And I always had that goal for my children because my mom didn't complicate things. She, if, if you only had one, if she only had one goal in life, you know, it's, it's pretty easy maybe to either strive towards that or maybe it's easy to stay focused or maybe um, it's a way of having everybody understand what that person's purpose is in life versus, you know, it's like picking and choosing your battles. If uh, At what point do you have, you know, are you going to take all your battles and if you keep going with the battles and the battles and the battles, uh, whoever you're having your, the battle with, they're going to lose focus. Um, so anyway, back to my mom, my mom had one goal in life and that was for her children to be reborn. Now that's pretty simple. And, um, all the love that she gave to all of us, um, I think being reborn, um, was, was, uh, I, I thought it was pretty easy. I mean, because she had, that was her focus. And I remember when, uh, the day, the week, the, the Sunday I was reborn. It was my uh, first year back from working down in Harrisburg. And I would randomly uh, go to church you know, with my parents on a Sunday morning. Didn't go every week, but you know, I, you know, I, I would try. I, uh, going to church... It was a part of my life in high school, and when I went to college, I never went. Uh, didn't need it. wasn't important. Uh, just too much else going on in life. Mm. Didn't have time for it. 
when I came back, um, I didn't really have a desire to have God be part of my life. Um, it just uh, wasn't important to me. Well, anyway, I go to church one Sunday morning, and I'm sitting in church, and Pastor Brown had come and uh, went to a, it was a Trinity Reformed Church. And they would change ministers every 10, 15 years. I guess that's pretty normal for that type of uh, church environment. And uh, this minister was, uh, is the right word charismatic? Is that the right word? That's a word. So at the end of the service, he asked whether anybody wanted to go up and um, accept Jesus as their Savior. Hmm. And good gracious, Steve, Luke, I'm sitting in my pew. I'm, I got, I'm holding a, a hymn book firmly in my hands. And he said that the last thing I wanted to do was stand up and walk to the front of the church. Uh, I didn't want to walk to the front of the church because I really didn't want an issue with my father. I didn't want to walk to the front of the church because everybody knew me in the church. Can I ask, John, why would that have been an issue for your father? Um, you know, that, that's a good question. He goes to church every week. Um, I guess maybe because I'm creating a scene. I'm um, not following protocol. Um, I don't know. I don't know that, Steve. But you felt that way. You thought if I do this, it's going to be a problem. Um, I don't know whether problem's the right word. My my dad never. My you know I I paint this bad picture for my dad, and I love my dad dearly. Sure. I I guess I was just always trying to make him happy, and I never could. Mm. My mom claimed that I reminded him of his father. And his father was this flamboyant guy and always had to make sure everybody laughed in the room. And I, 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 I don't know, but it's just something about it that I just, I don't know, just never got along with him, but love him dearly. Uh, he's still alive and he means everything to me. Mm-hmm. So in that church, it's just about maintain it even strain, don't make a scene, keep it status quo. Just keep it status quo. And, mm-hmm. and uh, so he says, so, and you know, another thing with that is it's almost like um, when Jesus came back um, to the place where he was born and raised, and I, wasn't, I think I, I, I'll get into reading the Bible here a little bit um, in my recovery, I've uh, managed to re- read the Bible uh, two times. I'm on my third time through. Mm. Uh, first time took me 10 years. Second time took me 20 years. Mm-hmm. So the third time through, I'm what, in my third year, but it's pretty cool. Um, not to get too sidetracked with that, but when I put the Bible down after reading it the first 10 years, and when I closed the book, I wanted to walk away on how that 10, year of, 10 years of reading could change my life forever. Um, and I was really adamant about when I closed that book after 10 years, I wanted to change something in my life from that day forward. Mm. Um, you know, it's like 9-11. You have 9-11 and everybody's angry and got all these resentments and what's going to happen. 
years later, we just kind of get back to the status quo. I, I didn't want that to happen. And um, so when I closed the book, I, I wanted to be more humble. So that was, uh, that's when I closed the book the first time, it was, no matter how humble I am, try to be more humble. And uh, I've tried to pray on that every day since that time. When I closed the book, uh, you know, when I read it uh, from the uh, 10 years sobriety to 30 years sobriety, and I closed the book, it took me twice as long. I went and started going by um, a con uh, commemorative uh, book series this, uh, from a certain author where he'll take a, uh, like the Matthew 16 to 23, and instead of trying to read it from um, an older version, you know, this guy would take these verses and make 500 pages out of it, and I, I tend to uh, enjoy reading a lot more, and I seem to get a lot more out of it. Mm -hmm. uh, but so anyway, when I, when I closed the book after um, the, the, from between the 10 and 30 years, I... Um, took me about a week to come up with what I wanted to, how I wanted it to change my life forever. And, and I, I might have said this to you last week, but it was that what is the purpose of man? And when I closed the book the second time, I took the purpose of man as God's pleasure. We're, we're, we're here for God's pleasure. Now, that's just my interpretation. But if I'm here for God's pleasure, I really want to do the right thing because I want him to be proud of me. And I, 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 I'm constantly working at that. But the last three years, I, um, I try to have that part of uh, my life every day hmm. to have him be proud of what I'm doing and how I'm coming across as a Christian. Hmm. Okay. Um, so we went through my high school, my college, and my first year at work. Um, and then my addiction really started to take off. Um, okay, what time are we talking about now, John? Uh, 1985. 1985. Yeah. Are you back working with your dad now? I've been back working with my dad about a year. Got it. And uh, uh, yes, I've been uh, back working with my dad for about a year. So after being back for, um, so it was a little over a year then. I guess um, my addiction started to uh, take a, a turn, I guess, what, for the better, right? I mean, that's what I, I, I don't know whether it's a better or worse, but I, my addiction got, um, it, it demanded a lot more of my time. Let's say it that way. Um, over the next year, I managed to... Uh, my, my job was doing well, and so I had more money, and so I expanded my addiction into um, harder drugs, specifically cocaine. Um, but 
I, I, we got to stop here for a second because what happened was when I went back to work for my dad, I had to work as much as my brother and my cousin. It was a construction company, and these guys would go to work at eight in the, uh, 5 in the morning, and they'd work till 8 at night, six days a week, and they loved it. Mm. So naturally, I couldn't go to work at 7 or 8 and then leave at 5 because I wasn't carrying my part of the bargain. I wasn't, I wasn't giving, I don't know why, why, why does everything have a cost and reward in life? But, you know, I wasn't putting in what they were putting in, so I had to put in the time. So consequently, you know, I would be going to work at 5 in the morning just to answer the phone that never rang. Oh. Or, and then I'd have to stay till 8 o'clock at night when... Uh, you know, the shop was being closed and all the foremen were going home when, you know, my job was done at five. So what did I do between five and eight? I drank. My last year of, uh, in my addiction, I, um, I was drinking, um, I hate to say, um, a fifth of vodka a day, but it wasn't a problem to drink a fifth of vodka with, uh, you know, a quart of grapefruit juice. Hmm. Um, wasn't a problem to drink a case of beer or Budweiser. I love Budweiser. I drink a case of Budweiser a day for a year. Um, and, you know, I was such, I was the perfect con artist. I mean, for a year I got a, you know, I, I, I mean, just don't know whether anybody knew what I was doing. Um, one of my friends from Harrisburg uh, introduced me to cocaine and, you know, first, uh, it, it's, it's a funny thing to talk about it on a podcast because it's almost, you know, it's almost, it's embarrassing. But, you know, I'd, I'd go down there and I'd buy this little envelope and then, you know, I'd, be, I'd say I would do a line. You know, the line was in this envelope. It was four or five inches long. Hmm. I don't know, $90. And, you know. And next week, you know, oh, that was pretty good. So I'd go down and I'd get another line. Well, within about six months, I was doing, um, you know, first it was a gram and then it was an eight ball. And that's a term I haven't used, you know, said for 30 years, but an eight ball was, I don't know what it was, eight grams, I think. Hmm. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd start doing this, say, at 5 o'clock um, when everybody's working, and, you know, by 8, by eight o'clock at night, it was gone. And um, it was just, uh, I almost, uh, almost um, don't even like talking about it because by the time I got done with it, I'd, I'd wanna, I, I would go into the closet, and I would shut the door, and I, and I, and I didn't want anybody to know where I was. Um, it, it was a, it was a really scary, dark feeling. I didn't, uh, I didn't want to share anything with anybody. I, I didn't, I didn't want anybody to know. I, but I, I just couldn't get enough. I, so, I don't know. Then, for there was a lapse of time where I, I tried to hold off from doing it, which. Like anything in life, like trying to trying to stop something you don't want to do on your own is completely futile. You cannot. I could not do it. See, there that there's that we. Maybe there's other people in the world that can do that, Steve. 
I don't know. But I know I couldn't. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't control anything. When did you begin to realize this, this thing was out of control? Uh, that's a good question. I, I got married during my addiction. Hmm. Um, I um, was married a year in my addiction. You know, I'd go down and work all day, come back, go up and um, I lived right above where I worked, which was another terrible thing to do, right? Mm -hmm. No break, no nothing, just walk upstairs. And, you know, I was great. I fooled my wife. I fooled my dad. I fooled everybody. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know how they couldn't smell it on me or how they didn't know I, what was going on, but... Can I, can I ask you, how did cocaine make you feel? Uh, cocaine made me feel like, um, just really happy. Mm. And invincible. Invincible. Someone once described to me who also struggled with cocaine that for that moment, it makes you feel like Superman. Oh yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, and, but it also in a way you think for the moment masks the sense of sadness or, or not being happy. Um, I think that, um, you know, they say for every year that you're so, uh, sober, uh, let's see what the rule, what, I learned certain principles when I was in my, I, well, I didn't get to my treatment center yet, but there was a certain principle that was given when, you, when I got out, they told me for every year that I, um, every year that I was sober was seven years of an addiction. Mm. Uh, so I guess what I'm saying there is, uh, I don't mask. I don't know whether mask or just not have to deal with life. Got it. How, how about just deal with life? I think it fits. Um, an escape, an escape. Yeah. Mm. So, um, I managed to get married. Um, Managed to continue with the business. Um, and then, you know, our marriage wasn't any good. Our marriage was terrible. I was, I was engaged three times. Every girl I met, I wanted to marry and fall in love with. It was crazy. Hmm. Um, th engaged three times. And um, all three of them, you know, I broke up with them. It was always me. And, you know, never happy. Um Boys wanted more. I don't know. It was really crazy. Mm -hmm. um, and then the way, I, um, so anyway, uh, I was married about a year. And I'll get to that in a minute. But what happened, how I got married was my best friend from college was getting married. And he invited me down. I was in the wedding. And he invited me for, down for the, uh, what is it, the rehearsal dinner? Is that what it is? Or an, uh, pre, uh, the engagement party. So I was lived in Pennsylvania. He lived in Baltimore. So I came down to Baltimore for the engagement party, and I met a girl that w uh, was in the engagement party on his uh, his wife's side. In other words, his the woman he was marrying had her um, maid of honor and girls in the wedding, and I was in the wedding. And this girl that I met that day was in the wedding, and turns out to be my wife. So. And that day, I'd only seen her for a couple hours because um, her father, her grandfather, whose name was John, um, 
uh, was sick and uh, eventually passed that day or the next day. So mm-hmm. I, re- I really only ever saw her for a couple hours that day. But, mm-hmm. you know, five months went by and I saw her again on uh, the engagement, but not the engagement party. When was engagement? Like rehearsal dinner, I guess. Mm-hmm. And one thing led to the other and uh, I ended up here. Yeah. Oh, wow. There's There was a good tear. Yeah. She, man, she's my rock. Um, and I, I, um, I immediate, I had an, an immediate attraction to her. Now you say, John, you were engaged three times. You had an attraction to every woman. I did. <laughs> I did. But her attraction was different. It was, um, I felt, this is crazy, but she, she was the first woman that I ever went out with that reminded me of my mother that. This woman could be a good mom, mm-hmm. and that's uh, that one that, that weekend of you know the, the rehearsal dinner and, and after the wedding, on the way home. That's that's what I remember about my wife. Mm-hmm. Thinking of that, and that that connected with you. Uh, yeah, yeah. We uh, dated uh, for about um, I don't know ten months, mm-hmm. twelve months, and came down and got married. Yeah. <laughs> Big Italian family, they're great. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're just tremendous family. So anyway, after being married for a year, and um, we started going to a marriage counselor because our marriage wasn't working, and my wife got so sick and tired of me always working that she'd go, she'd go down to Baltimore every weekend, and I'd stay home. I couldn't wait for her to go because then I could just party all weekend. And this went on um, a, a little bit of time, and then we decided to see a marriage counselor. Well, we ended up going to this marriage counselor for a couple months, and we really weren't getting anywhere. Well, I mean, why weren't we getting anywhere? We weren't getting anywhere because the problem wasn't us. The problem was me. Mm. Uh You know, just to reflect right now, after all these years, uh, sometimes I think about the uh, suffering and the the pain that I created to all those that love me for the simple reason I I just wanted to mask what the the problem was. So, Mm -hmm. anyway. Okay, so... um, we realized the marriage counselor wasn't working. And on a random day, my wife gets admitted to the hospital. And turns out that she has a, a kidney problem, disorder, and it was caused by stress. Mm. So she proceeded to tell the doctor why she was stressed, which was because I, uh, you know, I, I had an addiction problem. And I got to tell you, I, I, I was ready to drive in Dr. What was his name? I, I forget what his last name was, but. Don't mention it. Ah, uh, I, I couldn't wait to go and I was going to, I was going to wring that guy's neck. So you were angry at the doctor. Oh my God. I was, I, 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 I could never kill anybody, but 
I mean, I was very angry that he would share that with my parents. I mean, because, you know, my parents went in to see how my wife was. And actually, they were there before I was there, probably because I didn't have all my facilities and I needed to make sure I didn't have a bad breath and could walk right. So my parents actually found out that, um, you know, she had stress because of me and why. And they didn't know you had an addiction problem. Absolutely not. So, um, here's my wife. She's in the hospital, not doing well. My parents find out. So, consequent, so what's the next step? So, the next step is I have to go and see a, <clears throat> a drug, excuse me a second. <clears throat> I have to go and see a, you know, a drug counselor. So, for the next, I don't know, uh, let's say six months, time goes by and make my weekly trips, go to my counselor. And it's, the only thing that happened in that period of time was instead of going down to Mom Newfers for my case of beer or my six-pack of beer, I ended up visiting the 24 different bars every 24th day so no one would know I would have a problem. Because by the time I rotated around to the um, the 24th bar, you know, two weeks or three weeks had gone by and, I mean, how could anybody ever pick up on that, right? You had a strategy. Oh, it was a great strategy. Um, and and you know, while this was going on, it took me till like the second or the third time around until I realized what I was doing. I, I mean, I didn't even pick up on it right away. And um, one day, my wife goes home for the weekend. And it's a Saturday morning. And I sat there, and I didn't get a DWI. I still had my job, had my wife, and I'm, and I'm sitting there on a random morning. I'm 27 years old, and I say to myself, there has to be more to life. Hmm. Never forget that. Sitting there all by myself in my room. I, I, it was early in the morning. I, I don't think I partied yet, uh, which would have happened any time. But there had to be more to life. And uh, I called my wife, who's in Baltimore, and I said, you know, Joe, I got to do something. This is crazy. And she couldn't believe I was, I told her that. Um, so then I called my mom. I said, Mom, you got to take me to, I got to go. I got to go to a treatment center. I got to, I got to do something. So. She got me, she put me in the car and drove me to Father Martin's Ashley in Haverty Grace. Mm -hmm. um, um, God love my mom. We stopped at probably, a, I probably had to stop uh, 20 times on the way. It's what, a three hour drive. And you know, I hit every, I'd go into every restroom, smoke a little weed or get a drink at the bar and come back out and there she was sitting in the driver's seat just going to the next one and the next one. I really was really good at manipulating whatever, you know, people, the, my surroundings to make it be whatever I wanted it to be. I, I was, I was really good at it. Uh, anyway, so I put myself in a treatment center and it was a 30 day program based on 
um, staying sober, drug-free, and you couldn't leave the environment. So I slept there and went to, you know, or whatever. I went to the classes, uh, morning meditation, uh, looking out over the Susquehanna, whatever it was. A 30-day program, um, and everything is going along good. I got it all figured out. I know where my drugs are. I'm ready to get out. I only got two days left. And I'm ready to go back out into the world and just continue with my addiction. And my counselor, Dave Creed, Dave, Dave, he was my counselor at the time. He was my counselor for 30 days. He wasn't getting anywhere with me. So on uh, two days to go, we sit down and we have a one-on-one and he role models my father. And uh, uh, I realized that uh, I don't know whether my father was the problem, but he was at least a part of the problem. Mm. Um, and he role modeled my father. And within, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes, I'm, I'm, I'm on the floor crying, telling him to stop. And uh, that, was, that, was, that, was, that was my low. That was, that was um, you know, they say every addict has their own breaking, their low point. It's a threshold when they get to the point where they throw up their hands and they say, I've had enough. Mm-hmm. And that was my low point. And I was fortunate to get it. Um, I could have gone a lot lower. Um, I still think to this day, uh, it, it'd be very easy for me to live on the streets of Baltimore and, um, you know, walking out to the car at the red light and saying, you know, can I have some money? Mm-hmm. I, I really believe that from the bottom of my heart. I really believe that, um, you know, it's the same thing getting back to Christianity. I really believe that Jesus lives in all of our hearts, but we have, we have, there has to be a, a divine, there has to be something that says to us that, he, that we want him to come in. You know, we, we want the spirit to come in and, you know, I, I struggle with Christianity sometimes because I think there's a lot of good people in the world mm. and, you know, they haven't accepted Jesus as their savior. And, and if you, if you read from, if I read from the good book, you know, they need to accept him and, and say that he's their savior. And why, why am I embarrassed sometimes to ask people if they are? When you come across good people, am I embarrassed because of uh, how, how they're going to perceive me? Am I embarrassed because, uh, you know, how they're going to take it? Sometimes I don't know why I struggle trying to promote Christianity when um, it's probably our sole purpose in life. Mm. Well, how, how about that one, Steve? Why do you suppose I, I struggle with that? Well, let's go back to this question. When he role modeled your dad, he 
He threw the ball down the middle for you in your life and some of the things that you think were latent and that you struggled with that you never really managed to get your head around or deal with. What about that moment that he role-modeled your dad that brought you to that place? What did you realize? Um, I, I just... That, oh, boy, what did I realize? I, I just realized that uh, it, uh, it, was a, it was something in my mind that I didn't have control over. I think that's, I mean, you know, I'm just randomly giving that my thought, but it was something that uh, just, I, I didn't have any, um, I, I don't know, Steve. Mm-hmm. I, that, that, I don't know. For somebody that I, I, there's nobody I love more than my father, why, you know, the counselor, you know, role modeled him and why I went to my knees. I have no idea. I, I, I don't know whether I can answer that. But we can agree. It, it, it struck a nerve. Well, def, it definitely struck a nerve. Hmm. So what happens after that meeting? Um, I called my cousin. I told him where all my reefer was buried in the coffee cans. So he let it go down the little fishing creek. And um, I, um, I got rid of... Everything, all my stashes I got rid of in that day and a half. Because I only had a day and a half to get rid of them before I, um, I was out. So that, that's what I did for the next day and a half. Um, and, and then I left. So I go, I go back home to my hometown in Pennsylvania. And I realize I can't do, I hate to say this. But I couldn't do what the program told me to do. Mm-hmm. The program told me don't change people, places, or things for a year. You have way too much to try to recover in, to try to get back on your feet, to try to be a recovering addict. Don't change the environments where you come from because you're, you're going to have a hard enough time struggling getting through the day. You don't need to struggle on where you're going to live and who you're going to love. Just you have to, you, I, 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 not you, I needed to focus straight on myself. So I did everything the program told me not to do. I moved in with, I quit my, I, I didn't go back to Bloomsburg because I was afraid I would go to my drug sources. I move in with my in-laws at my wife's house in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. I quit my job. And right, uh, you know, my, I, this is a, uh, this, I hope this is, comes out right, but the, um, I, I move in with my in-laws. I quit my job and I get my wife pregnant. Uh, I, it's crazy. It's, um, I don't know why I want to complicate everything I do in life. I, I, I don't want to take the easy road to anything. Mm-hmm. Maybe because I always want a reason so I can fail and I can look back on it and say, well, I failed because I know this is okay that I failed because I took the hardest path I could take. 
why why was you know becoming pregnant at that moment you you choked and that was very emotional for you to say but why is that complicated because um <laughs> from a couple of times my daughter has reminded me that uh you know that's you know that's when she was conceived mm. so um I, I never want her to feel that it was, um, you know, by an accident or I didn't want it. I, I would never want that in a million years. Right. Uh, but um, the before, let me pick up on that in a second. Sure. But when I got out, I had learned a term in college called absolute truth. Mm-hmm. And when I left Father Martin's Ashley, the absolute truth for me was Jesus is my Savior. And I've had more people try to convince me why that guy shouldn't be my Savior or trying to explain evolution or trying to explain what's going on in the world. And I can honestly say in 32 years, whenever I have these conversations, within a minute I start laughing mm -hmm. because I could spend my whole life wondering whether there's Jesus and if he's my Savior. I could spend my whole life wasted trying to find that answer. Mm -hmm. If I accept it as an absolute truth, I can spend the rest of my life trying to figure out how I can be that person and uh, which is a constant lesson right I mean I mean how many times have I read the book and it's still not enough I mean every um, I mean I have obstacles in front of me every day that I make mistakes on I, I don't have a problem making mistakes you're not gonna go forward I, I see we I'm not gonna move forward if I don't make mistakes so I, I don't have a problem with any of that but I did uh, accept that absolute truth when I left rehab, and I've never looked back. So, when I uh, moved in with my in-laws and got my wife pregnant, um, I spent the, ne uh, the next eight months, nine months, until my child was born. I didn't work. I don't think I worked. I probably um, went to anywhere from, I went to at least two meetings a week sometimes. I mean, two meetings a day, maybe three. Mm -hmm for almost the first year. Mm -hmm. So I averaged, I, I, th I think, 24 meetings a week for the first year. And um, you know, it, probably the, the, the neatest story out of all that while I'm going to all these meetings is um, I was afraid to be around anybody that knew me because I, was, I didn't really want to let my guard down. I didn't really want anybody to see what was going on. And I think that's because for all my life, whenever I had a problem, I would just smoke a joint or drink a beer, and my problem would go away forever. I, I would never deal with that problem ever again. It was gone, buried. All of a sudden, you know, I move in with my in-laws to get my wife pregnant, and I got to deal with just every, every part of life. There's no running from that. No, no running. And uh, I, did, I, I, uh, I didn't know how to do it. 
I, I made a lot of wrong decisions in my first year. I guess because I didn't know any better. Uh, but w- the neatest part about living with my in-laws and um, not having a job was uh, they were a big Italian family, and um, my father-in-law never, ever asked me or told me I screwed up or why did I marry his daughter. Mm-hmm. I, um, You were waiting for it, weren't you? I was waiting for it, like the, uh, everybody else. I mm-hmm. mean, I, when I got out of treatment center, I didn't have any friends. All my friends, uh, uh, my best friend from um, Bloomsburg, um, I saw him, you know, I went up for, when I got out of treatment, I went back thinking that's what I was going to do. And, you know, I see him and he doesn't, he doesn't say to me, John, how you doing? He's, you know, he says, John, you're not going to tell, you're not going to rattle me, are you? Mm. And I, I, I looked at him like, man, that's all you got to say to me? And um, so I, I, I had to leave everybody behind. Um, I, it, was, it was terrible. Uh, now my family, not you know, God love my family. I, none of them made me feel um, like I disappointed them. None of them, I'm, I love, um, there's a special value with family. I remember one time uh, we all we all went to Hawaii for a Christmas vacation, and um, my parents had got divorced at that point. And I remember my dad, uh, whatever my dad says, I all listen because uh, he, I know he would never lead me down the wrong road. And I remember him saying to me, John, as long as you can remember that you have issues, you'll be able to go away with everybody and have a good time. And that's pretty true. In other words, you know, we, none of us are perfect. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's important as I live my daily life to constantly uh, remember that. I, um, one of my readings, I don't know, five years ago was on, um, uh, I don't know where where I was in the Bible, but I walked away saying, you know what, I'm I'm not going to judge anybody. I'll, I'll leave that for God someday. And, and I really try to live every uh, day not judging people. And for me, that's very hard. Mm. I, I really struggle with, I don't know whether forming an opinion and being, you know, and judging them are, are the same, but I, I do it way too much. Um, and sometimes I need to get back on track on, uh, on myself instead of what other people could be doing wrong. So. So anyway, um, our first daughter was born. That was uh, in 88, 1988. Uh, went through, a, had a couple of jobs, went through a house or two, and um, have grown to the, um, the Christian that I am today. Hmm. Um, I, and I don't know where to ever start with those last 30 years and, um, and, and, and the journey other than what it was like, what, what happened and, and where we're at now. I think probably, you know, the last 45 minutes or the, however long I've been talking here, I, I think for the most part, people get the idea of where I've come compared to where I was. Um, the good Lord gave, uh, my wife's still with me. We have three daughters, two grandchildren, and um, 
uh, when I was in treatment center, I said to my counselor, I said to Dave, Dave, man, I was, I was just getting ready to leave after 30 days, and I, and I almost, you know, I had a natural high. And I said to Dave, I said, man, Dave, I'm going to go out and save the world. And he said to me, he said, John, you take care of yourself and your family. And if anything else happens, it, it's, it's, a, it's a bonus. And you know, I've never, uh, why, would I, why would I remember that? But my point is, my family is a full-time job for me. Mm -hmm. I haven't really been able to, I can't say I haven't been able to branch out and do more, but that's been a full-time job for me. Well, and, um, but the fact of the matter is that I still have the compulsive, uh, compulsive addictive behavior. So um, I think having the compulsive, over the last 32 years, taking the compulsive addictive behavior, I firmly believe I was born an addict. I don't know whether it's a personality trait, but I, I believe I was born to be an addict. And part of that is because of a compulsive, addictive behavior. Um, they say us addicts are the most loving, forgiving, um, under, uh, they say addicts are um, a sp very special. I mean that in a good way. Um, whether it's because of they, they gravitate, whether it's because they have a way of carrying themselves, I, I don't know. Having the compulsive addictive behavior over the last 32 years, my, my goal has been to harness the compulsive addictive behavior to be productive. And instead of, I tried for the first 10 years just to have it go away, but it, it wasn't who I was. Um, so I've taken it and try to make it productive. So how do I make it productive? Uh, over the last uh, 25 or 30 years, I've probably run a marathon every fall. Um, just, you know, and I can't do a 5 or 10K. You know, my wife and my kids are saying, John, why don't you just do a 5 or 10K? Well, it just, it isn't me. Mm -hmm. So instead of listening to other people, no matter though I know I should. I know that my loved ones would never tell me something I shouldn't do. I, I know that. I still struggle with n not listening to them, but, you know, you gotta, I gotta hang around losers. I mean, winners. I don't have time for losers. I, the, the older I get, I, I don't, I really don't want to waste any time on them. So if I hang around winners, that means when they give me advice, it's advice that I can listen to, and even if I don't want to do it, I can at least take a, a couple, take a little bit of time and reflect on how I could make it a part of my life. But anyway, having this uh, compulsive addictive behavior, um, a really good story is uh, when I did, I did an Ironman, and... Uh, I, we had all of our kids, God love my wife, because, you know, you train for an Ironman, it's every day. Mm -hmm. I was in the pool every morning at five. 
And I was biking 100 miles every Saturday and Sunday for like seven or eight months. And, uh, you know, leave my wife home with the kids. It was, but I, you know, I started, I wanted to finish it. So it's about three or four days before I go, I'm going to take my family up to Lake Placid. And I'm putting a mirror in the dumpster and I cut myself on the main artery on my wrist. And I immediately have to go up to the emergency room. And when I walk in, I'm holding my wrist. There's this beautiful woman that comes over and sits down by me for like, you know, an hour while I'm waiting for the doctor. She's just carrying all these conversations with me and I'm feeling pretty good about myself. So finally it's my turn to go in and I go in to see the emergency doctor and and this woman walks in and sits down in the, you know, in the, you know, the area around the curtain. And, um, which I thought was a little strange, but well, I proceed to tell the doctor what happened and say, no, doctor, I don't care what happens when I leave here, but you have to do something because I have an Ironman to do in four days and I got to swim two and a half miles and I'm going to be able to swim it. So the first thing the doctor does is he releases the social worker that spent the last hour with me because she thought I was going to kill myself. <laughs> or, or I thought you had tried. Yeah, it was really crazy. I, was like, I thought I was a, you know, this special gift and guide. I, she, I just, when, as soon as he heard that, he let her go because he had done, done an Iron Man the year before. Mm. And he realized that how important it was to me. Right. So he stitched me up, and before I left, he said to me, you have to do me a favor. I said, okay. He said, when I did my Ironman, I had two young girls. And when I came into the, uh, it was, he also did it up at Lake Placid. So when you come in after, you, you know what, I biked, uh, I swam two and a half miles, then you bike 120, 22, mm. something like that. And then you have to run a marathon. Mm. And when you come in, you come into the same stadium where Eric Hyden got his five mm. gold medals in the, the arena. He said, when you come in, you have to do me a favor. I was so uh, worried about having the best time that I could have because I wanted to do the uh, National Ironman in Hawaii that I didn't take a moment to acknowledge my girls mm. when I came into the arena. So when I went up to do the Ironman and I come into the arena. Uh, uh, all, all my girls were there. Mm. And uh, what I did was I put the, uh, the, the smallest one on my shoulders and, uh, you know, I put uh, one girl on each of my arms and we ran across the finish line together. And, uh, There's so many parts of that story that kind of uh, reflect on my life. First, it was people form an opinion that something was wrong with me when there was nothing wrong with me. Then you have the doctor who had done an Iron Man and regretted something that was the most precious to him. And then you have someone like me that 
every competitive nature, everything in my body says that there's no way I'm going to stop, pick up my girls and go through the finish line. I mean, I've, I've, I've given this my life for 10 months. I'm, you know, I really, I don't want to take that extra time. And for some crazy reason, I listened to the guy. And um, every time I walk down the basement and I see this picture, mm-hmm. uh, there's so many parts of that story that I remember, but they're all good. So, uh, yeah. and I think that's um, the way the way my whole life has been since I've been sober, but with with uh, putting trying to put my family first, but allowing myself to be sober to be able to put them first. Um, a couple other really uh, big parts of my life that uh, one that's worth bringing up is. Uh, we have three daughters, and uh, when the uh, when the youngest was like fourteen, she was diagnosed with lupus. And when she came home before she was diagnosed, she 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 was a she was a very good swimmer, um, and. She came home one day and she just didn't feel good. And within two or three days, she had 102 or 103 fever. She couldn't get out of bed. Uh, she couldn't eat. And uh, we couldn't, we couldn't, we tried to take her everywhere. And because she was 14 years old, we couldn't get her into pediatrics for, I, I don't know, it was really. I don't know what was so complicated about getting her in recovery, but no matter where we went with her, they didn't have any answers. And she continued to get worse. Uh, and over a period of two weeks, she lost a lot of weight. Uh, she was in the, I never forget, we gave her Epsom salts, uh, you know, baths all day long. She just sat in the tub. Hmm. And um, I f- I finally, we um, put her in my vehicle, and we went down to Hopkins, and I said, I'm not leaving until we get some answers. Um, and we got the answers. Uh, she was diagnosed with lupus. What made it a challenge was because of her age, and it was um, the test is for the, one of the single cells in the blood count. And when you had your normal blood, blood test work done, it, if you didn't ask for this particular test, it, you know, it wasn't picked up. But the point of telling the story of, of, our, da- of our daughter is that I had all these plans to get her better. I mean, I, I had it, and every time I tried with a plan, it, def, it failed miserably. And from that, from that, over that two weeks, I was humbled so much because of everything I thought was right and everything I was trying to do as a father was failing. And I, I, I just, I had a, 
there's an expression I had to let go and let God. Mm. And that, that's a real testament on how there's been times in my life when, when I think that I'm in total control and I have a plan. It's when I, that's sometimes that's what gets me in trouble. When, when I, when I think I'm, I'm, I have a plan and I'm in control. Mm -hmm. I realize I'm just that rudder on the ship. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, I think it's almost good to, to have those humility lessons as I go along in life. Because sometimes I need, you know, the, the bat across the head or the, uh, I'm not good with subtle reminders or nudges. I, I, I need some, I'm, I need that big impact before, uh, before I'll listen, which, why, why do you suppose that is? Why do I have to have, why, why do I, why do I have to have a situation become so bad before I want to ask for help? Why do I, why don't I ask Jesus that for a little help sometimes quicker than when I do? Hmm. You know, everyone who has come in here and told their story has said almost the same thing and have reached this place in their life where all they can do is look up. And I think you just nailed it. I know there's some things that Luke is thinking about uh, going back and asking you that we've heard you talk about and I as well. Luke? Uh, John, my, my biggest question, and I hope this will be the bigger, biggest takeaway for anyone listening as well will be when things really began to turn around for you, when recovery really began, seemed to be around that moment where it hits you that Christ and Christ in your life, more so, is the absolute truth. What is it about that realization and complete and full acceptance of it? that made kind of that hinge point difference in continuing down the road of addiction versus beginning on your journey to recovery? I, um, that's a great question, uh, Luke. Um, I, as crazy as it sounds, uh, It was knowing that I wasn't alone because I I accepted Jesus. He was a part of my life. It's uh, what knowing that I'm never alone for the last 32 years, going on 33. It's like um, for me, it's it's I, I, for me that's the most important thing. I I. When I am by myself or I don't know whether I have the support of my wife or my children or I'm making a decision, I always have him. And that's the, that was the turning point for me, knowing I'm not alone. Many have said that addiction is a very lonely thing. Um, and... Uh, and it's uh, it's only because you you don't you don't you you can't share with anybody. It's um, ad addiction is um, it's selfish. It's um, 
I, I use the word devil all the time with my daughters um, because it's easy to question my faith when I think about my daughter having lupus. Why, why, would, why, would, why would God give my daughter lupus? It wasn't God given my, and my, you know, you gotta understand this is, this is my interpretation and my interpretation might not be right, but my interpretation allows me to get through the day and look forward to tomorrow. My interpretation is that was the devil. And that's, that's just the way I feel about evil in the world. I, I don't, I, Jesus isn't a part of any of, he, he would never want that. And, you know, if he's in total control, then why would he give our daughter? Why did he have to take him? Why did he have to go up and be on the cross? Why, why do I have to? Well, why did the devil hate the idea? I mean, the, the only time the devil's been defeated in Christ's whole life is when he died on the cross. The, the, the other 33 years, however many days Jesus was alive, the devil was all around him. Right, um, whether it was in the garden or when he spent that time alone, or um, I was just reading today with um, Peter when uh, Jesus said to Peter that he had to die, and uh, Peter says, "Oh, you can't do that." And uh, you know, Jesus said, uh, "Satan, get behind me." So um, here, here's a here's one of the twelve guys that have followed him around. Probably was one of his favorites, and you know. He, the devil made him say something that he didn't even want to say. So sometimes knowing that, I mean, if this, if this guy followed him around for three years, gave up everything, then the devil can talk, uh, make him say things. Good gracious. I'm just a guy that lives uh, on, a, on a street in Baltimore County. Mm. Um, so for me, it's that simple. You, you once were a guy who would go hide out in a closet because you didn't want anybody to find you and what you were doing. Let's go back, and I, I want to ask you that question where you were in that church and you're afraid to go up when this moment that gave you an opportunity to go up. What did you do? What did you end up doing? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh man. This is this is great. So I'm sitting in this church pew. I'm about halfway. I got all these people around me that I know. I know everybody. And I was saying how I don't know why sometimes I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed to say this where people can hear it. But sometimes I'm embarrassed. I don't want to say about being a Christian, but I don't know why I was embarrassed to go up front and have all these people. What are they going to think of this guy? Because mm -hmm. no one else was up there. Mm -hmm. Why, why, do I, why do I care what other people think about me? Well, I guess because I want to do the right thing. I, I don't know. I, hopefully and we can do another podcast in mm -hmm. 30 years and <laughs> some of these other answer questions that I, I ask myself, I can get the answers to. But I'm sitting in this pew in the middle, mother and father, and says, does anybody want to come forward? And I'm holding a hymn book. And I'm sitting in that chair. And I got to the front of that, I got to the front of that church, sitting with that hymn book in my hands, 
without taking a step. Hmm. And I have no idea how I got there, but I refused to stand and walk to the front. And the next thing I knew, I had the hymn book and my mother, my mother came with me. Well, I wouldn't, my, my mother's sole purpose in life, right? Mm-hmm. Have her children be reborn. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad didn't come. Um, you know, it's like um, my mother-in-law. I love my mother-in-law. Mm-hmm. She's great. And I think that there, there's a, as generations go by, this perceived thing of love. Uh, you know, my, my parents never said they loved me. Did, did that mean that they didn't love me? Of course not. They loved me dearly. But um, and my mother-in-law, the other, you know, I tell my mother-in-law every time, you know, I, every time I see her, I love you, mom. Because, you know, I, my mom's 150 miles away, and mm-hmm. my mother-in-law's just tr- just tremendous woman. Mm-hmm. Jeez. And, uh, and, you know, so for, I don't know, the last 10 years, you know say She would say, sure, John. She would, you know, put her arm on my shoulder and same here. But about the last year, you know, she's been saying, you know, I love you too, John. Mm. Now, did she love me just as much 10 years ago? Absolutely. But, you know, I think sometimes we, we, here we go. Sometimes I form an opinion on people just based on maybe their emotions or how they carry themselves when so many times the, the feeling that I have isn't how they feel at all. And uh, just like this feeling about going up front, it really doesn't matter what, how other people perceive me or what they thought it was. It was just about the moment and just uh, next thing I knew I was right there. Hmm. But would you say, even though your addictions and your struggles continued after that point, but was that the beginning of John's transformation? Um, yes, because I wouldn't say yes, no, because for God's sake, I, I still mm-hmm. had my addiction for years. Sure. But um, there was something inside of me. There was something inside of my head that every once in a while, you know, it, some, something from that day forward, even though I went back to my addiction, that left an impact on my eventual recovery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where the work began. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, for the first couple of years, uh, um, yeah, I remember when, um, like a, a week later after I went up front and, you know, I'm into my addiction is like, eh, I'll get it. I'll do it tomorrow. You know, uh, us addicts, we're, we're great at putting off until tomorrow. You know, mm-hmm. I'll, 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 I'll start five minutes later tomorrow. Right. If I, if I got that case of beer and I started at 12 o'clock, I'll start at 1205 tomorrow, you know, and then tomorrow would come and I'll start at 1205 tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it goes back to what I was saying 10 minutes into the talk where uh, we justify everything we do. So when we lay our head down on that pillow at night mm. and, um, you know, it's nice when you can lay it down with good thoughts. Amen. You know, there was a, a good part of your life that you were an unlovable kind of guy. I mean, just the things that you're doing and you're struggling with and how it made life difficult for those who did love you despite that. But you forwarded me some of the emails from your daughters in the last week about you coming on the show, and I really saw how those those 
children, those grown women loved you. And it sounded to me like you were just a man who just loves his kids and his daughters and and such a beautiful thing. And and you would say that, that Christ in your life is a, has made that happen, would you? Oh, I um I, I would absolutely say that um you know I, uh, I'm, I, Steve, I'm ready for the next question. That's that's just the way I got it. I um, 100%. Got it. 100%. I think sometimes I struggle, and I've talked about this a couple of times. That what 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 is my job mm-hmm. as a Christian here? And um, it's taken. You know, you asked me a year ago to to do this podcast and it's taken me a year to get here because uh, as much as I'm flashing, flamboyant and center of attention, maybe sometimes I'm I don't realize how maybe scared I am of trying to help uh other people or maybe um you know, I, I don't I I don't want to ever be responsible for leading somebody down the wrong road or you know, have my guidance uh, take them backwards instead of forwards. So mm-hmm. it, I, I struggle with that. I, I don't really know. Um, I don't know how you feel, but sometimes I don't know. Um, this could get me in trouble, but I, I really don't know what my purpose here is sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll keep it simple like the counselor told me 33 years ago. Focus on yourself and your family, and if anything ha- else happens along the way, it's a bonus. Well, let me tell you, tonight's been a bonus, <laughs> being with you and hearing your story. And as we end a lot of our times together, is we ask this question. For those out there who have similar stories or struggling with the same thing that you have, whatever to whatever extent that might be, where does hope come from? Um, where does hope come from? Um, great question. Um, you know, my first thought is, you you know, the three steps of faith, hope, and love. And I think that, um, hope comes from, um, I would think of it like a, um, of a, a stepping stone. Naturally, the first step is faith. And faith for me happened years ago. Um, And it's almost, um, I don't want to say it's invisible. um, Because, you know, I get my faith through uh, reading and people like yourself and Luke that um, I, th- I think Jesus speaks to all of us and so I get my faith from from my 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 reading my, my family the loved ones that are that I can go on on their guidance when they say things give um, whatever just to just a conversation just having coffee in the morning mm-hmm. so if you have faith, it leads to hope because um, 
I don't know. I don't, that's a tough one. It just seems like you have faith, and um, it's something that you can't just take your hand and squeeze and feel. Mm-hmm. It's there. Mm-hmm. Hope, hope is the same way. It's, it's something that's there. Um, and so much of, of our lives as Christian, when you have faith, you get hope. Uh, you know, um, but and goes hand in hand with love. Uh, um, I, you know, hope. You know, on one hand, it seems um, like I hope. I don't know whether I understand sometimes what hope means because um, I can't say I hope I'm going to heaven mm-hmm. because I am going to heaven. Mm-hmm. My faith allows me to feel that way. So I, maybe like when you say the word hope, I, I don't really know what the definition is. Because depending on how I just used it in, the, in that sentence, um, it doesn't, it's not what, it, hope's not meant to be used that way. Mm. Well, how, I mean, how is hope meant to be used? Mm. Um, what, how, what do you think about that? What, how do you feel that um, hope is the middle step? Of, do you understand what I'm saying with hope? I do. It's a, it's, a, it's a broad question in many respects, but it's also the one thing that wakes us up in the morning or wants us or we want to wake up in the morning that, that we know that it, that it can get better, that there is a way out, that there is life beyond my current struggles it's that one thing that says i want to take one more breath for one more day and uh you tonight through your story have given many hope we'll figure out what that means completely but you have (laughs) yeah well and i wasn't even thinking of hope that way i was thinking um so many things uh in my life it might I think it's schematics on on how I say it, on how it's perceived. But when when I think of it the way that you just said, I agree with that, and I hope so as well. Absolutely, you've taken us on a a beautiful journey. You took us in the back alleys of your life, and I, I want to thank you on behalf of Restless the Podcast tonight for doing that, and for all those who had the opportunity to listen or will have this opportunity to listen. You know. Think about what John just said and, and his journey. How about your life, Luke? Uh, would I, if I were to try to distill everything we've heard just into a sentence or two, I, I think it would go something like this, and it would be that we're, we're all suffering because of separation, and, and addiction is just such a clear and intense separation and loneliness but john as you began to recover with that starting point being the realization of christ is it not christ who came to put an end to separation and loneliness and so healing that is where healing began for you and i think maybe in different forms but same process same need for the rest of us too Yeah, well, thank you, Luke. Um, I was uh, reflecting back on some of the um, points we've talked about, and um, 
and I'd like to just back up with a couple of uh, conversations that I had that I want to make sure that every, everyone in the audience understands. And when I talked about uh, the way that it was, I want everybody, you know, that was listening in or I still have the uh, patience to want to listen after <clears throat> this long is that no, nothing means more to me than my family. And um, some of the things that I said about my father, no matter how much I might have painted him not to be um, the loving dad, just the opposite, um, he was very loving. and. I said that I feel that we're born with a compulsive addictive behavior. I think I was born an addict and I um I think that I needed my dad to be who he was so I could get into the recovery when I did. Um when, when I was in um ha- uh, Ashley um I was talking to my counselor about uh, my grandfather who died an alcoholic or close to it. And um he said, "You know, John, be thankful that you found cocaine. And, you know, I look at him like, geez, what, what are you talking about? He said, well, you could have been a maintenance drinker like your grandfather your entire life and wasted your entire life. Mm-hmm. Instead, you know, you've you got your bottom at age 27 and, and you could do productive things. So, um, you know, if, if we take the time to listen to what he's trying to tell us, if we take the time, the answer, the, I will get the answers. Um, one other item I, I think that is important for everybody that's struggling, and that is, I made, a, in my recovery, I made a lot of mistakes. I, I still lied. I still, I, oh, I did something else I got to mention I talk about. I did a lot of things wrong, but I managed to do one thing. If I screwed up everything else, the one we I for me, I had to have something that I could always hold on to. Um, because when I start to fail, I find that I just want to keep on going down that road because. I failed, so what's the big deal? I might as well really fail. And I was always doing that in my addiction. Since I'm going down a road I don't want to go, I might as well keep on going. I already, I'm already got to ask for forgiveness when it's all done. I might as well go do everything I want to do. Hmm. So for me, I the one I I I've always been true to my wife, and sometimes. Um, when I think about that, when uh, sometimes when I look at the things I've done wrong since I've been sober, sometimes I need to think about what I've done right. And by thinking about that, it kind of lifts me up and, um, it gives me hope. There's a good word for hope. Hmm. Um, it gives me hope that, you know, I'm going to be okay. Because I, I love to beat myself up. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm beating myself up all the time. And uh, sometimes when you know you do certain things right and you do not, and I do not allow myself to fail at that, mm-hmm. I always have hope. 
And it sounds to me, John, one of those things you did right was your wife. Absolutely. So, uh, I don't know what, um, I, um, I'd like to read every day. Um, I don't know whether it's, um, a good time to, uh, close with something that I read a couple of days ago. Luke? Please do. Um, I'll try to do this. I'm not, uh, so you guys don't know what I'm going to read about. Let's see if I can, uh, I don't know. It's, um, from McCarthy and it's, uh, two chapters. I mean, two, two paragraphs. And it's somewhere in Matthew five twelve, the blind who are made to see. So here we go. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Paul wrote, quoting Isaiah, For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. As a believer studies God's words and allows God's Spirit to interpret and apply it, he is divinely enabled to understand even the deep things of God. Though utterly blind in the natural mind and spirit, by God's gracious provision, he is given knowledge and understanding of the most important truths in the universe. As with the two disciples to whom Jesus appeared on the uh, EMS road, EMS, E-M-M-A-U-S road. A Christian heart should burn with wonder and glory as the Lord makes his truth come alive. Oh, there we go. That was my reading, Luke 24, 32. Mm. Great. I don't know. I, um, when I read every day, some days I have to read two pages. Some days I have to read 10 pages. Mm. But I'll read to a point where I can close the book and focus on what I read for that thought for, for, for the rest of the day. And, um, Monday or Tuesday, I read that and it stuck with me for that day. How very appropriate. And we want to thank you for being on the show tonight or today. And, and just, it's been a, a great journey that you've taken us on. So thank you so much. Thank you guys. Hopefully we can um, have someone reach out. Uh, hopefully my words can be instrumental to somebody. And uh, if somebody ever wants to get back to you, uh, Steve, and need some guidance or uh, need some help, I, uh, we, we could see what we could do on, on how I could possibly help. Thank you so much. That's what this is all about. All right. Thank you, John. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to episode 11 of Restless the Podcast, featuring John, titled, Hello, my name is John, and I am an alcoholic. For we here at Restless the Podcast are restless to find the one who said, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. For whom is your heart restless? And for today... 
who can release you from addiction. It's easy.